0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things.
1: I'm Tyler Huckabee.
2: I'm Chris Youngblood.
1: <laughs> I'm so sorry, my cat just fell off. <laughs> <laughs> what happened i'm hannah mazell <laughs> i'm right uh, hannah did your cat just jump on you is that what you said Yeah, my poor cat a really fat cat just jumped on a box that wasn't like but halfway on the table and he just jumped on it and like inertia just took over and he was like, oh <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> so, yeah he's okay don't worry he's got okay. enough cushion to blow but um yeah
0: off to a really solid start. Okay, your cat is fine. We're all here. This week we are talking about Legion, uh, the comic book that has also inspired a show on FX. How far, before we get it, we're, we are, as always, we're going to open up with a little bit of superhero news, but how far are we all into Legion? Is anybody completely caught up with season two?
2: I'm season one. I, I'm done with season
0: one. So you finished like all the way through season one, I haven't started season two yet? Correct, yeah. Okay.
3: I've seen two episodes of season two. You were saying,
0: and I didn't know this until we were just talking about before we started recording you and and Hannah and Hannah's husband, Justin, you guys tried to watch the first episode of season of Legion, but everybody was like super drunk. Is that what I understand?
3: I wouldn't say super drunk. Uh, (laughs) There were some people that were more intoxicated than others. Uh, I actually remember the show and not being in bad shape that night. Um, But I suspect there were some others. Apparently,
1: Ryan was giving us caraway seed aperitifs and we didn't know it. Yeah, that may have
3: have happened.
0: (laughs) I've been to your house in Cleveland a couple of times now. I don't remember your liquor cabinet being full of like really exotic liqueurs and things. But whenever we record, you're always drinking something that sounds like you picked it up on the black
3: market, you <laughs> <Europe. laughs> no, it's just it's all a ruse. So that Chris and I can start our like Fernet and digestive and up podcast. teeth podcast. We, be Amaro, no, Amaru. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool.
0: It's all this is off the rails. <laughs> we're, we're never even on the rails for this podcast.
1: I actually. I you feel know, like that's almost extremely appropriate for this podcast because this particular episode, because it's almost like you would have to be two separate personalities to have a comic superhero podcast and then an operative like fancy cocktail podcast.
2: We're very complex people, Hannah, so we <laughs>
3: <laughs> so
1: a little respect <laughs> there.
3: I was going to say, it was one of those shows, and I think anyone who's seen Legion will uh, be familiar with this feeling, especially, like, the first couple episodes of each season. It was one of those shows where, like, you're watching it, and you finish, and you're like, man, like, I must have had more to drink than I thought. And then, like, you stand up, and you're like, oh, wait, no, I feel totally fine. It was just the show. Um, So I I think that was a big part of it, is that, like... Everyone, I think, mistook that uh, the show being super weird for everything else. So, because I've since watched all of season one again, and I watched it uh, with my wife Kate, and then with my brother and sister. Um, and watching their faces during the first episode was um, sort of like watching a drunk friend trying to open a car car door. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, so I, don't, I don't think the feeling of absolute confusion and a uh, near intoxication is unusual for uh, the show Legion.
0: Well, we will get into Legion a little more and our thoughts about the show and the comic book character. But before that, we are going to open up with a little bit of news. Uh, the first piece of news, this just happened today. We're, we're recording on a Wednesday, on Wednesday, June 6th. And the first full trailer for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse dropped. This is a separate... <laughs> It's getting confusing. Sony is releasing a Spider-Man movie that is based on Miles Morales, who is not Peter Parker. He is uh, half black, half Latina, uh, a Spider-Man from a different universe. But other than that, he's he's very much like Spider-Man. He's getting his own movie. Peter Parker is also going to be in this movie. It sounds confusing, and I think it probably is, but the trailer looks fantastic. I thought it looked fantastic. I was a little bit on the fence about whether or not we needed this, but I liked the idea of having a Spider-Man movie that was computer animated, that was all CGI. And I liked some of the early pieces we saw of it because the art is very innovative and the the CGI looks very, very unique and really um, comic booky in a really good way. And it seems to draw from the comics in interesting ways. And now that we have the first trailer, I'm completely on board and excited to see where they're going to go from this. What would you guys think?
2: I think... Like Jake Johnson as Peter Parker, like is not something I ever knew I wanted, but it kind of feels like a lifelong prayer that's being answered like <laughs> it works
0: really well it like I kind of like older Peter Parker as kind of a. Basically Nick Miller from New Girl, like kind of a a nerdy schlob.
2: Yeah, like he like Jake Johnson across the board is just is the best always Nick Miller. Yeah, yeah. Like and he's Nick Miller and everything. Like you hear his delivery. I feel like I'm gonna hear him say Jess at the end of all of his sentences in this trailer. So like it seems like it's gonna be a lot of fun and I really enjoy Jake Johnson. I feel like the like the cast for this, uh the voice actors are like across the board is amazing. Um Brian Tyree Henry, who is, uh, plays Paperboy from Atlanta, is Miles' father. Uh, you got Maheshala Ali. And then Leif Shriver and is Kingpin. Like, I just, like, across the board, it feels pretty... It feels pretty stacked, Um, which like for a movie that like I wasn't paying too much attention to, even as like a huge Spider-Man fan, I like it really wasn't on my radar and I wasn't sure what they were going to do with it. But it looks really cool. The animation actually reminds me a lot of do you guys remember the Spider-Man animated series that came out in 2003? Uh, that was on MTV for a little bit.
0: Called like Spider-Man, what, Unlimited or something like that? Spider-Man.
2: I think it was just like literally called Spider-Man, the next animated series or something like that.
0: Okay, it does, you're
2: right,
1: yeah. I accidentally downloaded that for my son because I thought it was like the the original Spider-Man and it was like, it opened up with like, some like frat dudes like throwing a kegger. And I was like, what is happening?
2: <laughs> <laughs> the, the animation does remind me of that quite a bit, but uh, like, you know, 2018's version of that. But I think, yeah, I, I'm excited for the movie overall. I don't think it'd be super confusing for people given that it is animation. Like I don't imagine people are expecting it to tie in much, But, um, but yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm excited for Miles to have a little bit more of a like, like mainstream spotlight versus like what he's had in the comics so
0: far. Definitely time. And I'm also excited that something that they did not, they had not announced until today that they revealed in the trailer, which was a, a very smart move was that spider Gwen is also going to be in this movie. There is yet another alternate universe in which Gwen Stacy was the one bit by a spider instead of Peter Parker. Uh, and she becomes spider girl. And she apparently is being voiced by Haley Steinfeld and is making an appearance in this one too. So Probably the potential for lots of different upcoming spinoffs for this franchise, a whole sort of spider cinematic universe with a lot of different the Marvel has created any number of different Spider-Mans. There's Spider-Man 2099, who's Spider-Man in the future. There's, uh, there's Punk Spider-Man, Iron Spider. There, we, we have a lot of options. And, and I think that's based purely on the trailer right now. I'm excited to see it. And it's Chris Lord, right? Is the one who directed this one. It's like Lord Miller wrote it. okay Okay. he wrote it well we'll take that in other (laughs) news uh we (laughs) heard yesterday that jared leto's joker is getting his own solo movie supposedly which is apparently going to be different than the todd phillips joker movie that has also been announced and is maybe happening i can't figure this one out i can't figure out why dc would do something like this I don't know. I don't know who wants this. I don't know what about the reaction to Suicide Squad made anybody think this was a good idea.
3: Based on his career since the Suicide Squad movie, uh, Jared Leto has basically stayed in character as the Joker ever since then. So maybe they're just trying to. Maybe this is like his family's way of sort of extending the fantasy, and you know, hoping that eventually he'll kind of snap out of it. Um, So because like. I keep thinking, like, what has he done in the last, you know, four or five years where execs are, you know, basically begging him to be the centerpiece of this tentpole movie? Because it, it sure wasn't Blade Runner 2049. Um, and I don't think it was the new 30 Seconds to Mars album. But, you know, I, <laughs> I, I be forgot there was a new 30 Seconds to Mars.
0: Yeah. What was the last unequivocal Jared Leto win? Like, that was a W for Jared Leto's career.
1: Well, he won the Oscar for um yeah,
0: for Dallas Buyers. Yeah, but that Dallas, was
1: that was a while ago. Well, that was the last win. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking over at DC right now, and I kind of they've and they've canceled more projects, than they've actually had out right at this point. So it could be that they're just greenlighting stuff and kind of gauging fan reaction to the announcement, and then canceling. We talked a few weeks ago about how they've greenlit an Ava DuVernay movie about new gods. That sounds pretty interesting to me. Um, we did receive word that Wonder Woman 2 is is currently filming. Apparently, it's taking place in 1984. Very excited to see at where Wonder Woman goes from here. Other than that, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're thinking right now. And a Joker movie is not the like shot in the arm that this franchise needs to get back on track.
2: So there was news that came out that Diane Nelson, uh, who's president of DC Entertainment, Um the news was that she is stepping down from that position, which would that position be like parallel to what Kevin Feige has done over at Marvel, uh, like with the whole MCU.
0: I think it's probably the closest parallel that they have. I I think that it's kind of a shared uh, as far as I understand it. And I don't know if anybody, maybe somebody knows better than I do, but her and Zack Snyder sort of share co executive production duties on this universe. But Diane Nelson was also in charge of the TV shows Uh, like Arrow and The Flash and Supergirl, uh, the CW. So The Flash is pretty well regarded, and some of their TV shows have have gotten good reviews. I think she was also in charge of Krypton, that new sci-fi show, but evidently she's stepping down supposedly for family reasons uh, for something going on, so I I hope that she's okay. I have no idea how involved she was in the announcement about the Jared Leto Joker movie or or anything else going forward, and I don't know who they're going to hire to replace her. That has not been announced yet.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think it's just so weird to me that they keep announcing all these projects. I mean, how many Harley Quinn movies have been announced? And I mean, I feel, I feel this way kind of like a, uh, about the Fox X-Men universe too, is, you know, supposedly all these movies are coming out, but, you know, it feels like until we actually see a firm release date, like I just don't believe any of them.
0: I don't believe that this like Dark Phoenix movie is going to happen until my butt is in a theater seat. The the credits right. start,ing and even then, I'm holding my breath because it just keeps on getting pushed back, and and nobody seems to know what they're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of it's weird times for pretty much any superhero franchise besides Marvel.
3: Yeah, and that's what's weird is it actually feels like it actually feels like we're almost back to a pre Marvel superhero movie day. Where, like, you know, there would be tons of rumors and, you know, it's almost like the Nicolas Cage Superman thing where it's like, oh, yeah, it's totally going to happen. There's a director, there's a script, and then, like, it just falls apart and you never hear anything. Or, like, the Wolfgang Peterson Batman versus Superman movie that was definitely going to happen. I think it's weird after, you know, we've seen, uh, like, Avengers Infinity break a billion dollars so quickly that they seem to have trouble bringing in, you know, bringing some of these franchises in for a landing.
0: One movie that is we do know for sure we're going to get out of DC is Aquaman. Um, <laughs> we'll see how that one goes. This is kind of going to be DC's Hail Mary, I guess, and I'm not sure they would have gone for it uh, if, they, if it hadn't already been in production. But it's happening now. It's coming in December. Supposedly, the first trailer is going to be released along with uh, the new Jurassic World movie. So we'll get to see our first look at that soon. That one I think has a possibility of being good. I don't know. Is any are you guys interested in an Aquaman movie at all?
1: I am only interested because James Wan is directing it. Yep.
0: And James Wan is a good director who has made some great movies. He's made some less than great movies, but he I, I think he has potential of making a very good the possibility for a good Aquaman movie exists.
1: I'm hoping that he'll like make it pretty cool and moody. I feel like he excels at that, at least, you know, like in his the horror genre, he's done a really good job with that. So I think if that, there's anything that can translate well from that genre to this movie, it could be that. And, uh, you know, really there, there's only, you know, they can only go up from here. So
3: (laughs) (laughs) what I also think, I mean, he directed, uh, furious seven, which I mean, basically is a superhero movie with cars. Um, you know, I, I feel like, like I love the fast and the furious movies. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about them. Like Hannah said, I think if you could merge that sense of like fun, kinetic energy uh, that is in the Fast and the Furious franchise and merge it with some of the moody weirdness from, like, say, The Conjuring, I think there could be the possibility of a really cool movie. Well,
0: uh, we'll have a better idea probably in a couple of weeks. And then the last piece of news that we have, and this is this barely counts as news because I think we've talked about this before even, but Noah Hawley, who wrote and directed Legion who wrote and directed uh, Fargo, directed some episodes of Fargo, uh, but, but created and, and produced and, and is the writer of all the episodes of Fargo on FX, has a Dr. Doom script in the can. This has been rumored for a while that, he, that there's a Dr. Doom solo movie that he really wants to create uh, and, and Fox is interested in it. It's very much up in the air right now because nobody really knows what's happening with Fox's uh, superhero characters, Marvel might be buying them, but that uh, deal has not been solidified yet. So anything's really possible. I love the idea of a Dr. Doom movie. I love the idea of Noah Hawley writing a Dr. Doom movie. I think that it could be a really interesting political thriller. And I think you could, even if Marvel ends up buying the character, I still like the idea of introducing a villain into the Marvel Universe via their own solo film instead of backpacking onto a a superhero-centric movie. I just, at this point, don't know if we're ever going to see it happen, really. Uh, But I hope we do. I'd love to see it.
1: It seems like now that, you know, Justice League didn't perform as well as they were hoping it was going to. And now that we're kind of, you know, reaching like the end of the MCU, like this first phase with Infinity War, I think we're going to see a lot more like standalone stories. Yeah, that's probably true. in, In Marvel. Which I think is good, you know, clean slate, if you will. And there's a lot, there's a lot more, you know, characters out there to discover. You know, let not beat the dead horse. It's a pretty good opportunity to introduce, you know, non-comic fans to some pretty awesome heroes.
0: I think that, if anything, this the past few years, especially the past year uh, and maybe year and a half, has really proven that that there's been enough of an appetite for known superhero quantities. Captain America, Iron Man, the Avengers, that people are willing to give more oddball, less known characters like Guardians of the Galaxy, the Green Arrow, they're willing to give them a chance. And if the movie is good, then people will respond well to it. They'll do well to it, which is why DC is probably willing to take a chance on New Gods with Ava DuVernay and also why we got something as as weird as uh, Noah Hawley's other superhero project, Legion, which is the subject of today's show. It was a very easy segue. I appreciate everybody helping tip that one off. <laughs> we got into this a little bit, but let's let's just say kind of generally. Um, Legion, for those those of you who haven't seen it, you're you're missing out on a, a TV experience. The best way I can put it is just I just haven't seen anything quite like it on TV. I don't I really don't think there's another show out there. It's not the best show I've ever seen i, I don't want to i want to be careful here, but it's definitely i think it really is the most unique show I've ever seen. I have nothing else to compare it to in the t v canon even remotely. It's its own thing
2: it definitely plays into my love of like any form of entertainment where I'm always like kind of sure what's going on, but also like wondering what the hell I just experienced yeah. And said, like, this is just, like, the perfect, like, this is really is, like, a perfect show for that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I th- it's weird because um, it's hard to separate my love for Legion from my, my like, undying love for Noah Hawley. It's interesting you say that Fargo, or that Legion's not the best show you've ever seen. Because, like, Fargo actually is my favorite show. So, like, when I heard that the creator of Fargo was creating a superhero show, I had no idea what it was going to be like. But I knew that I was, like, going to be in and I think, at least for season one and what I've seen of season two, I think it's such a unique take on the superhero genre. And I think he does what he has done in Fargo as well, where it takes a couple episodes to kind of pick up on the beats of the story and understand. Because like you said, it, it like it really does feel like nothing else on TV, where you almost have to like be immersed in it for a couple of hours to even understand like how the language and the story beats work. But then once you crack that code, then it immediately becomes a sort of like pulpy superhero drama that we watched like six episodes of in two days. Like there's nothing else like it, the the idea that they're doing a superhero show like this and making it so compelling that people watch it like binge watch it while, you know, like getting away with massive Bollywood dance numbers yeah. and, you know, never knowing what's real and having like multiple timelines and just all this crazy stuff. I think like is a huge achievement, and you know. Then you look at like, then it's like, oh yeah. Then Iron Fist exists, and it's just like, <laughs> it's just, like amazing. That those two things are ostensibly executive produced by the same people. How much of it have you watched, Hannah?
1: I've watched all season one, and I hate. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I started season two. But I I started watching the first episode of season two at like nine thirty p.m. And I fell asleep 15 minutes into it. That's all
2: Hannah, a hundred percent. I swear to you, that's exactly what happened to me last night. So you're not
0: alone in that.
1: <laughs> I felt so lame. And so I put it off until after Westworld uh wraps up. And then I'm gonna we're gonna start over again. But um, you know, it's so hard to describe Legion in terms of comparing it to something else you've seen, right? Like you as you guys have said, it it really is so unique in the way that it tells stories and the way it kind of the story progresses even. And what I actually really liked about it just because, you know, we're in a culture of binge watching. I actually, I can't binge watch Legion. Like I watch one episode and I need to decompress because it's, it's intense in its own kind of peculiar way. Not like an intense and like a uh, breaking bad kind of way, you know, like (laughs) it's just, there's like a lot to, to try to decipher from each episode. So I always needed to like think about it. And then like I'd wait a day and I watch the next episode, which I kind of liked that. And it was good too, because I was watching on DVR. So it all, it all worked out. But um, I was trying to think but when Ryan was just, you know, talking about his opinion of it. Like if you, to me, like it almost reminds me of a show that like David Lynch would make. Yeah, There's some bizarre elements to it, but that actually serve a real purpose. And not only, you know, furthering the plot, but also really developing the characters and making you understand them. And especially the characters who are suffering through some mental illness or just dealing with crisis. Uh, I think they use some of the kind of absurdness that you'll see uh, with like True Purpose, which I think just really shows the skill of Noah Hawley and the other writers of the show. They did an exceptionally good job with it.
3: I feel like more than any other show, I could think of except Fargo, like the show really excels at using, like Hando said, the weird stuff in it that like on the face of it seems just like in there to be strange. Like it uses it to create this reaction in the viewer that is exactly what they're intending because it's like either what the characters are feeling or what the characters are experiencing. And so, you know, when there, when there's a literal dance off in the first episode of season two, um, It somehow makes sense because like that's like that's what the characters are sort of experiencing as well as they're trying to like figure out what's going on because the interesting thing is like the characters don't even know what's real and what's not real so I just like I think that ability to make the audience sort of uncomfortable and like to bring out those unexpected things, I think is a real power of the show.
0: Let's talk a little bit just briefly about the, the dance parts of it, because I would say this show is maybe 30% like psychological thriller, 30% maybe straight up horror, 30% somewhat conventional superhero drama, and then maybe 10% dance TV show. Uh, because dancing plays in pretty regularly to a lot of the episodes. And one of the criticisms that you do see Legion get from, from some people is that it's weird for weirdness's sake. There's a lot of, and season two leans into this even more, a lot of aesthetic touches that are not explained, that don't seem to have any basis in reality, that contribute very little to the overall logic of the show. Uh, and one of those, like, like Ryan, you mentioned, it, there is just the dancing. Uh, But I think it's actually a very – the weirdness for weirdness sake I don't buy into because, like you said, Ryan, I think it's just creating an atmosphere of of bizarreness and and contributing to the overall – the feeling of the world they're trying to create. And the dances are a really interesting way of showing the sort of mental combat that these characters are engaging in. There's a lot of things that are happening in a psychological world where you – it's not happening – to the characters, that's happening in their minds, and dancing is a great way of showing, uh, like some of the the fights that they're having, some of the things that they're wrestling with, some of the temptations that they're facing, whether it's sexual or or even to betray relationships. I think it all contributes to the idea of a show that I really can't, I, I really have no analogy to it. and I think all of hopefully what you're getting from this if you're listening to it and you haven't seen it is that you need to watch the show to understand what's going on and that's absolutely true it is also the the show does deal very explicitly probably as explicitly as any show on tv with the subject of mental health uh that's actually implicit in the character of Legion has been since his creation we will talk about that a little bit after the script In 1970, when Annalisa Mikel was 16 years old, she had a seizure. Doctors in her small municipality in Bavaria, Germany, diagnosed her with epilepsy. Her condition worsened, and she was taken to a psychiatric hospital where she was prescribed anti-convulsion drugs, did little to alleviate her symptoms, which grew not only worse, but increasingly bizarre. Michel was described as seeing a devil face throughout the day. She was prescribed more drugs. She began to hear voices telling her that she would rot in hell. Most sinister of all, she developed an intolerance for religious objects. Michele had been raised a devout Catholic, and she began to suspect that her condition was not medical but spiritual. She asked for an exorcism, but local priests refused, saying her condition did not meet enough of Rome's criteria to qualify. By the time Mikhail turned 20, her life had become a nightmare. She was eating spiders and spending hours at a time, seemingly unable to stop acting like a dog, and a priest named Ernst Alt was finally convinced to implore the local bishop to agree to an exorcism. Michael, Alt believed, was possessed by a demon, multiple demons, in fact. There is some biblical precedent for the Catholic belief that a person can be possessed by not just one, but many demons. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus confronts a man who is said to have lived among the tombstones of ancient Israel, cutting himself with broken shards of rock, and was so strong that even chains couldn't hold him. Jesus, sensing that the man was possessed, asked for his name. My name is Legion, the man responds, for we are many. If an ancient Jew could be possessed by several demons, why not Annalise? About 10 years after Mihail's first exorcism, a 25-year-old comic book artist named Bill Sinkenovich was offered a job illustrating The Uncanny X-Men, which was being written by a white-hot luminary named Chris Claremont. At the time, it was far and away the most popular title at Marvel Comics and would be a surefire career maker for any up-and-coming comic book creator. But Sinkenovich turned it down. He had just wrapped a run on a B-lister named Moon Knight, and was bored of conventional superhero stories. He wanted to do something a little wilder and weirder than X-Men, something the higher-ups at Marvel wouldn't mind allowing a little experimentation on. That's when Claremont himself came to Sinkinovich with an idea. The original concept of the X-Men was that it was a school for young students with mutant powers. The original cast, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Iceman, and the rest, had been around for nearly 20 years— And newer recruits like Wolverine, Colossus, Storm, and Nightcrawler had skipped being students altogether. Wasn't it time for a class of young mutants to come under Professor X's wing? Claremont's idea was a title called New Mutants, and he wanted it to be a fresh, innovative take on the whole X-Men idea. He had always been more intrigued by melodrama and angst than superheroics, and a new X title would give him the opportunity to lean into the subjects he really wanted to explore without pissing off fans who wanted to see fistfights and explosions. And Claremont figured Sinkinovich, who was interested in trying out some new experimental artistic styles, would be on board. He was right. Even today, reading New Mutants is a wild ride. Sinkenovich cuts loose with an art style that fluctuates between caricature, realism, expressionism, fashion illustration, collage, and abstract. It's disorienting and occasionally confounding, but it gave Claremont the tools he needed to tell stories that existed on different planes of reality, addressing taboo subjects like trauma and emotional repression. And then, about halfway through the initial run, Claremont and Sinkenovich dropped a bombshell Professor X had an illegitimate son, David, whose immense telepathic power had rendered him in turns unresponsive, mentally unstable, and dangerous. This character formed the basis for Legion, which saw David's mutant powers as a potent metaphor for a disassociative identity disorder, a collection of personalities struggling for dominance in his mind. Some were benign, even sweetly innocent. Some were psychotic Frankly, it was all so on the nose that even calling it a metaphor feels like a stretch. The Legion arc wasn't long and ended relatively happily, though future stories would leave David catatonic, dead, or even once erased from reality. Claremont was more determined than most creators of his day to use superhero powers as a metaphor for real issues his readers were dealing with, and he and Sinkenevich wanted to use Legion to explore the world of mental illness. David wasn't the first comic book character to explicitly struggle with mental health issues, but prior to him, most comic book characters were driven to insanity by getting conked on the head, hypnotized by bad guys, or inhaling weird chemicals, and things were usually resolved by the end of the story. But David's mental health wasn't a plot device. It was a real part of who he was, and even if Claremont and Sinkenovich's flair for melodrama and abstraction sometimes made their stories unnecessarily bananas— They were both ahead of pop culture at large and recognizing that oftentimes our inner demons aren't things that can just be expelled. Sometimes we have to use whatever tools we can to manage living with our demons best we can. Annalisa Michael's experiences inspired the script for The Exorcism of Emily Rose, the 2005 supernatural horror movie directed by Scott Derrickson. The movie took a lot of liberties with the plot, But it remained one of the more theologically informed supernatural films in the Hollywood canon, owing largely to its reliance on Catholic teaching. In real life, Mikhail's bout with what she and her family believed to be demon possession ended tragically when she died of malnutrition from not being able to eat. She was 23 when she passed away and weighed just 68 pounds. In the years since, the Catholic Church has come under fire for their handling of the case. Medical professionals who watched videos of Mikhail's behavior said she was suffering from mental illness and could have been saved by the intervention of a medical professional even up to a week before her death. The priests were charged with manslaughter and sentenced to six months in prison. Her parents were also found guilty, but they didn't go to jail. The judge said he believed they'd suffered enough. Whatever your feelings about the reality of a spiritual world, it's definitely true that throughout history, mental illness has been misunderstood, stigmatized, misdiagnosed, and used as an excuse for persecution and ostracization. It still is. There's no easy solution for this, but pop culture depictions that help remove some of the stigma and normalize the experiences of people wrestling with mental illness is a step, especially when those depictions don't treat mental health like a pair of devil horns. In his recent comic book depictions and his show on FX, David is a complex individual, wrestling with a lot of issues—anxiety, depression, repression, and suicidal ideation, just to name a few—but he's also a multidimensional character—smart, courageous, confident, even sensual. It's the sort of representation we could use a lot more of in pop culture. We could use a legion of them. So based on all that, how do you feel about the idea of – because this has been sort of controversial, and I want to be very careful. We're talking about mental health issues. Mental health issues, I I understand, are extremely delicate, and and we will try to handle this as, as delicately as we can. How do you guys feel about the idea of using something like superhero superpowers, mutant powers in the case of, of Legion and X-Men to deal with real world issues like mental health? Do you think it trivializes or minimizes the reality of these things or is it a metaphor potent? No, that's a good
2: question. I, I, I think for... I think for the show itself, like keeping it to the show itself, uh, because there has been so much controversy around it for people to like even talk about addiction, depression, you know, schizophrenia, uh, and how those things manifest when we're trying to battle them alone and what it looks like, uh, when you try to get with, uh, better with other people who care around you. Uh, I think the show kind of leans that into that a bit. And that's a large task to take on with any show, uh, much less a, a comic book. One, but like they showcase several different times in David's life where he was genuinely trying to find support and help with, uh, you know, going to counseling, going to group therapy. Uh, you know, he was like, we meet him like in a psychiatric war, uh, ward, but we we also see his relapses. And if you're going to make a show of where mental health plays a part of it, you need to handle that responsibly. And I think giving a bigger picture that these issues aren't cured overnight and that they can be a lifelong battle and that you can go from feeling like everything is under control one day to being completely unraveled the next uh, was a really great illustration of what struggling with mental illness uh, looks like. And so like I haven't watched much of season two, but I do think that season one handled that really well of just kind of like the show like constantly goes back and forth of him. Like it's seeming like he has it under control and then he doesn't. And well, how do the people around him react to him lose like kind of relapsing a bit. And so like, when I look at it through the lens of that lens, I just, I like, I see such a good show of mental illness. Like, um, I can understand some of the critiques behind it, but, um, I see a lot of substance there and like a lot of reality of what it actually looks like to walk, uh, walk through life with mental health and see other people that you care about, uh, do the same.
1: I think that, um, it's fair that people would criticize it because mental health is personal to so many people. And so I respect anyone's disagreement with how they portray it. Um, I personally, I'm someone who has dealt with depression before and I obviously like that's not necessarily what David's issue is or some of the other characters in the show. But I think that what they did really well with the show is I feel like they, I think they use some of those horror elements that we've talked about before um, particularly powerfully in this way that demonstrating like that lack of control you have over your mind and how scary that is. And I feel like they got that across very well. Like were some episodes I thought were really hard to watch. I, I mean, I, I appreciated that, but they're hard to watch because you see someone like just in in mental anguish because they can't control their own mind. And I thought that they really demonstrated that so powerfully. And and honestly, because it was so like intense to watch, I think because I, it was sensitive to people who like really deal with maybe some of like the more manic uh, mental illnesses out there.
3: You know, I've had my own struggles with anxiety and depression in the past, especially anxiety. And I think one of the really interesting things that Legion gets into the show, but also I, I especially think of uh, one of the comic book runs by Simon Spurrier um, was in the 2010s. I want to say like 2012, um, his X-Men legacy run, which primarily centered on Legion really explored in detail, like how you can almost harness mental illness to do something, um, redemptive with, um, and not in the sense that like mental illness becomes good or like something that you want to seek after or something like that, but almost that there's the redemptive possibility, you know, and that's obviously explored, um, in various like faith traditions and psychology and different philosophies and even, you know, groups like the, uh, what Summerland and Leech in the the TV show. But just this idea, um, and I was, you know, stealing overtly from a Catholic theologian, uh, Henry Nowen, who talks about this concept of like the wounded healer, basically this idea that we can tap into our own wounds to provide healing for other people from those same wounds. I think where Legion gets some of its power is really interesting because it actually starts to look at that concept of, Like, how can someone in the context of a group or in the context of sharing or in the context of seeking help, how can someone actually start to harness um, or redeem some of the really difficult things that they're going through and actually come out a little bit stronger um, through that? And then I think on the flip side of that, I think Legion does a really good job of showing that, you know, that strength doesn't look like a happy ending. Um, There's still some dark corner that's permanently marked. Um, and we see that in season two where – and I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen the show. We see that in season two where even some stuff you kind of think is over and done with is clearly not because it's you know it's a part of who David is. And so I just think those are really heady concepts to balance well. I'm sure that the show doesn't always do it, but I really respect it for trying and at least in my view doing it really well. And I think, again, that X-Men Legacy run by um, Simon Spurrier makes it even more explicit where you're seeing more of the overt wounds that David is wrestling with, particularly in the case of the comics with basically who his father is. um, And the fact that like, like Charles Xavier was kind of a crappy dad and how that really leaves a mark and a scar on his psyche. And I think that's the
0: difficulty with any depiction, any, any cultural depiction um, or even so a number of, of non-cultural, non-fiction de- uh, explanations about uh, mental illness is there's a temptation to romanticize it, right? The idea that, that depression or anxiety makes you uh, is somehow this blessing that it's a, a good thing about you. And people who have struggled with it and, and and depression has been something that has been with me my whole life and and will be with me for, for the rest of my life. I will tell you that it, it, I don't feel like it makes me special. It's very difficult. And and at times it's unbearable and and it's very, very hard, but there's a balance or there needs to be a line between hating that about yourself and wanting to sever that from yourself And romanticizing it into something that's that makes it that you romanticize it to the point where you don't deal with it, where you don't seek out the resources and the tools that you need to learn how to handle it via like you were talking about, Chris, via community, people who will help you uh, via counseling and therapy. And I, I hope, I hope that people listening to this who have mental health issues that have dealt with anxiety and, and depression have sought out those those resources through counseling and therapy because it is vital. But I also think that things like Legion, as weird as Legion is, and we spend a lot of time talking about how weird it is, in some ways it still despite all that, it still kind of normalizes mental health by bringing it just by making it part of the cultural conversation in prestige television and by having a protagonist explicitly a protagonist a, a young male protagonist who's a good-looking guy and is a hero but who also is very clearly and explicitly struggling with mental health issues there's not a lot of shows that are doing that right now certainly not in the way that that legion is and I think that if I had had more depictions of that when I was younger, um, besides just comic books, which which have had that now for, for almost 30 years, then it may have been easier for me to be open and to express some of my own issues than it is, than it was for a long time.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's unexpected that you would see this very in-depth depiction of mental illness in like a superhero show. Um, but I think that, it's in this unique position to really um, showcase this kind of thing to people who might not otherwise know about it. For those who don't deal with mental illness and never have in their life, and or don't maybe know anyone directly who does, I think it's good for everyone to kind of get a sense of that. And you know, I think another thing too that's powerful about the show when when it, when it talks about these things and it shows you know the character struggle is that like they're part of a team and like and like I feel like they have like some of the most you know some of the greatest moments of the show are when they're just talking about their struggles or they or like uh, David's talking to Sydney and that, that connection, how important that is for him. And I think that's a great takeaway about just like finding a community or just like someone to, to share that with. But I thought I, I was really appreciative that they made that a central part of Legion.
0: One thing that season two gets into, uh, and, I, and I think all of us have probably witnessed that even if we fell asleep in the first 15 minutes, Is that there's these new uh, sort of, they sort of bookend the show with these like visual uh, object lessons about different mental health phenomena that are narrated by John Hamm and the placebo effect moral panic they just create almost a little vignette uh, a short film about how these things work and they provide some context for what the theme of that particular episode is going to be about it's a little weird and i would say sometimes it borders on getting its head stuck up its own ass in terms of feeling just a little bit like senior film major student project ish but some of them uh, I think Ryan you and I are talking about just on the basis of the visuals alone, which are really deliciously creepy, uh, actually end up proving some kind of interesting, being kind of educational and proving an interesting point
3: like that kind of visual uh, vocabulary uh, like feels very taken straight from the comics, yes Because um, that's something you can totally see you know being written in the comics, and even the voiceover that John Hamm is delivering feels like narration in little boxes yeah that are kind of scattered throughout the page as you're looking at this sort of like, and and I'm thinking of like that gross oily bird thing um, that they show a lot. Uh, So like, you know, leaning into that kind of visual vocabulary, I think works really well. Um, Like you said, I think sometimes it veers a little too cutesy for its own good. Uh, If I may risk the wrath of some of my fellow podcasters, it gets a little too Wes Anderson for its own good. (laughs) But I do think generally it, it tries to stick to, um something that has a lot of visual resonance. John Hamm's
0: voiceover is actually really good. It helps a lot that it's narrated by such a strong It feels like
3: a dot paper pitch. But <laughs> <laughs> Although it does feel like a Mercedes commercial sometimes.
0: But that's a, there could be worse things that is yeah. it that it sounds like. But it's also educational. I mean it does it's genuinely interesting to hear like the actual science behind how the placebo effect works. And when it gets into actual issues uh, like psych- of psychology, it's telling me things about my own nature, about human nature that I, I didn't know about. And I'd say that's a, generally a good thing. It It's a little academic, and th- the fact that that's part of a superhero television show five years ago, this would have been very hard to imagine. And and now it's just got renewed for a third season, so that is pretty exciting. And also makes me kind of hope that John Hamm gets cast in an actual superhero movie at some point. Apparently he's a big comic book nerd. I didn't know that until today. But I saw an interview where he was talking about his love of his love of Frank Miller, which kind of makes me question his taste a little bit. But <laughs> I'll give credit where credits due. He does does like comic books.
3: I think a few years ago you and I wrote an article suggesting that he should be Black Bolt, uh, which I think is still a great I'd say idea. I a bullet on the
0: current iteration of Inhuman.
3: Right. With John Hamm, if you want to talk about a movie. John
0: Hamm, if you want to be on the podcast, (laughs) we would love for you to be part of this one. We're getting close to wrapping it up before we close out. I do want to ask a little bit just about – we talked a little bit uh, off the record last week about the X-Men. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, X-Men were bar none Marvel's most popular property – Uh, They revolutionized the comic book genre. They kept Marvel alive in the 90s when when nobody was buying comics or watching any sort of comic book media. Now they're sort of the weird, um, like Marvel's B-list, like weird cousin that sometimes has a good movie. Deadpool did okay numbers. Logan is a fantastic movie. The X-Men movies themselves, as we've talked about at length in this podcast, are, are really, really hit and miss. What do you think happened to the X-Men, and and are you still interested? Like, do any of us actually read X-Men comics now? Like, the new ones that are coming out? I don't read any of them. No. Nope. I catch up here and there. That's not true. I catch up here and there. But I'm not looking forward to any of them, really.
2: I kept up a bit, like, after the whole Avengers versus X-Men event. Uh, but, like, I I think for me, like, I find myself if I want to read X Men, I kind of want to read the stories of the OG X Men, you know, that I knew like in the '90s cartoon. And after the whole Avengers versus X Men thing, and you know, there were there was a split of like Scott and uh, Cyclops and Emma Frost. They were you know doing their old thing, and there was just a big rift in between everybody. I just it got so tiresome to keep up with that it just like wasn't an interesting story introducing me to all these new mutants that I just really didn't care about. I in since then I just haven't really read any like picked up anything. I read a bit on even on Reddit from people really enjoying some of the newer X books like X uh, X Men Blue and stuff, um, but still nothing has really like
3: compelled me to pick up a new book. Yeah, I tried to read Brian Michael Bendis' All New X Men when it launched as part of Marvel Now. Just because I was like, oh, you know, cool, a new, you know, fresh new start. Um, it'll be easy to like get into and unpack. And it was like, I kind of gave up after like four issues because like that was, if you're not familiar, that was the one where they brought back like a bunch of original X-Men from the '60s and they time traveled to the future and met their future selves. And I was just like, I don't really like want a teenage version of Jean Grey like grappling with the fact that the Phoenix Horse killed her. Like, I just want. Like cool adventures, and you know, which maybe makes me very basic and lame. But I don't know; it's weird because, like, X Men comics, like there are some runs on in in story arcs that are some of my favorite comics that I've ever read, and then there are other ones that are just like I have no idea what's happening and don't care to know what's happening. Like I just get lost immediately. Hannah, you
0: mentioned last week, I think that you. I forget. Did you say you didn't like X Men or you didn't like Wolverine specifically?
1: I love Wolverine actually. Uh, no, I have tried reading like reading several different X Men runs, and honestly, like within three pages, like I'm like, who the fuck are you? Like
0: <laughs> <laughs> there are
1: so many characters, so many freaking mutants, and honestly, like I feel like by the end of an issue, I'm just like, this felt like a fucking soap opera. It because we kind of like you guys I don't know. I used to stay at home with my grandma when I was sick and she made me watch Guiding Light with her. <laughs> and like it's like there's all these characters and all these different storylines and it kind of it kind of feels like that to me. Albeit, you know, more interesting storylines, but still like a lot of just I can't keep up with everyone. I like I can get behind the, you know, the X-Men stories that are more standalone. Um, you know, the one character focusing on one character. Like I've been reading Domino. And they have, you know, recognizable mutants and you know, like dead pulling it and stuff. Um, but I like I like it when they're a little more isolated because I can't handle like a bunch of different characters that I'm supposed to recognize, you know, in like a single panel. It gives me it makes me panic. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> much. Um like I like I wasn't able to record with you guys for dead, the X Force episode. Well, yeah, right. And guys, I had like my, my husband has like, you know, I don't know, maybe like four volumes or something of some X-Force comics and I was reading them like great, these, these are here. I'm so glad I get to read them. Like non like not on my iPad. I'm super pumped about it. Got myself a beer, I'm gonna sit down, chill. And like I got a quarter of the way through it and like I was just I my, my I was just frustrated. So there he is. I mean <laughs> I just I've tried and I've tried. I don't like it
0: more than I think any other comic. X Men does feel like a soap opera. As we mentioned in the script, Chris Claremont, who really revolutionized the X Men and made them the X Men that we know today, really leaned into melodrama, and and he liked the idea that being this very angsty, lots of relational tension, lots of back and forth with love triangles and and breakups and clones of different characters ryan you and i were talking about i, I read uh, an article somewhere that made the case that the x-men series in the 90s is maybe the most convoluted narrative in the english language <laughs> which at first i said i didn't really think that was true but then i started thinking about it no. and i don't really know other than maybe like finnegan's wake what would be more complicated because it is a mess
3: yeah. If you've ever tried to, early on when I first started reading comics, I knew and had heard the name Age of Apocalypse. And so I was like, oh, I'll get that and tried and read that. And like, if, you, if you've ever tried, you should just Google Age of Apocalypse reading order. And it's like, there are all these teams you've never heard of. There are all these people. It's like alternate dimensions. And it's so confusing. It's basically like, Everything that the 90s X-Men doubled down on that Hannah hates, rightfully so, it's just so hard to follow. And and I feel like that's the X-Men are almost the butt of the joke for people who make fun of comic books because yeah, like, there's true. no way to argue back on it.
0: The X-Men were very popular in the 90s, so clearly there is a way to have appreciated it. Uh, despite the the machinations of Rob Liefeld and, and Fabian Nicieza, who really steered the X-Men in the 90s and, and whose names have fallen out of favor quite a bit today, they created some enduring characters. Uh, Cable and Deadpool both came out of that era and they just had a very successful movie. So clearly there was something to it. Um, but it did lead to, like Hannah was saying, there's an awful lot of what the fuck is going on moments in the X-Men Common that that still lasts today because nothing is ever truly dead in comics. So once you create it, you gotta be prepared to deal with
3: it forever. <laughs>
1: Glad I just got it out there. I feel better. <laughs> <Still>
3: <laughs> it. I really think X-Men almost more than any other team comic, and I mean this is sort of like this is very captain obvious statement, but it like really needs a good writer to kind of bring it all together. So like one of my favorite comics, not just X-Men comics, but like comics in general. One of my favorite arcs is the X-Men Messiah complex. It's really good and not too hard to follow along with. Right. It's not too hard to follow along, even though there are a ton of characters and there's like a ton of time travel and a lot of different like timelines and stuff like that. I think Ed Brubaker, if he didn't write the whole thing, he at least like started it off. And Ed Brubaker is like obviously one of the best person to ever write comics. And like Mike Carey wrote it as well, and like he's really good. So it just feels like Marvel, whenever they turn over the X-Men to their stable of really good writers who can write teams well and make it clear what's happening, and who especially like don't try to get too cute with it, I think then it could be really effective. I do think that some...
0: They're the more successful ventures into the X-Men world when they limit the scope of it a little bit, so you know what you're getting yourself into. Movie-wise, we've seen that work really well with Logan, like we've talked about. Uh, The Deadpool movies have been very successful by staying pretty uh, contained and sparse in terms of the characters they actually utilize. And I'd say that carries over to the comics, too. I finished catching up on the all-new Wolverine, uh, who is L- not logan it's it's Laura the little girl in the uh in the Logan movie is currently Wolverine in the actual comics it, she's the the only Wolverine and it stays really very much focused on her and and her life and her adventures it's a it's written by tom thompson it's a great read and it's a great read because you don't need to know much else going into it. As long as you have a passing familiarity with Wolverine and how Wolverine's powers work, then you can enjoy it a lot. I I think the same thing can be said of, I just read a little bit of Kelly Thompson's uh, Gambit and Rogue series. And that one is a, it's almost just a kind of a love story a, a rom-com that was some superheroics involved in it. And it's great too. And I think that would be a great way for Marvel to sort of ground itself for the future. Like, like, it reintroduce characters in really limited, easy-to-pick-up-on one-shots, and then you can bring all of those characters into a, a big X-Men team book in a few years once you've educated your audience again on who the X-Men actually are, which is maybe what the movies need to do, too. There's apparently a Gambit movie happening. That's not true. The Gambit movie would we all know that movie's not happening if they
2: gave us michael fassbender like so, like in first x-men first class where he like went full-on hunting down nazis like give me that movie it, it kind of like plays off of Colin bunn's uh magneto series yeah, from like yeah, 2014 which is great which yeah which is great like i think it just reiterates like the point here of like like there are good stories to be told individually but when like you bring them together, it just gets so diluted. It kind of get just gets overwhelming. And uh, when you put a team book in the hands of someone like Brian Michael Bendis, who like just kind of feels crippled when he like uh, when he has like a large team in his hands, um, it just doesn't flow as well. So yeah, like I would I would love to see more standalone series like that.
3: One character I feel like who always is really short shrift, and particularly in the movie universe, sort of uh, infamously so, um, is Emma Frost. Because I think she's a really great character, and when she's written well, is one of the more interesting ex-people in any of the comics. But I don't think January Jones' portrayal of her did her any favors. You know, I think that that could be if they ever wanted to do a standalone and kind of revisit that character, I think that could be really cool.
0: I would love to see a really good Emma Frost movie because I agree. She's a great character who uh, X-Men first class didn't do her any favors. I love, I love January Jones. I stand for January Jones. That was not the right, that one just didn't work out. I like January Jones purely because of her Instagram account, (laughs) which is delightful and has made me a fan of hers. Even if I'm not a super big fan of her work. But what can I say? She won me over Instagram. She's very self-deprecating and and extremely charming on Instagram. So I will always root for her outside of X-Men movies. Well, as long as she's self-aware. She, she seems very self-aware.
1: Self-awareness goes a long way. I'm going to go check out Henry Jones Instagram account. I'm curious now.
0: You're in for a treat. You're going to have a great time. I've, I always read her full post because she seems to possibly even kind of hate herself, which is relatable. Who among us has not been there? <laughs> and with that, unless anybody else has any like uh, X-Men movie pit, like X-Men solo movie pitches that they're, they've been sitting on, uh, I think that we will probably wrap it up for this week. Thanks for listening to Cape Town, everyone. If you liked what you heard, uh, please head over to our Apple podcast page where you can give us a positive review and also you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Cape Town Pod or on Facebook at Cape Town Pod. We want to give a big shout out to Chad michaels Snavely and Jesse, CM Studios is the one that keeps us sounding good. And we will see you next time. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Blood.
1: I'm Hannah Mazel,
0: And I'm Ryan Ham. No need for thanks citizen, see you soon, bye.